I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. There are, of course, three branches of government. When we vote, uh, we focus on two of them, the legislative and the executive. But appointed by the executive and approved by the legislative, the judicial branch may be the most powerful. In fact, the now far-right Republican Party is quite upfront in stating that control of the courts is their number one goal for winning in elections, though not nearly enough attention is paid to the judicial effects of who wins American elections are freedoms, including the freedom of the press, economic fairness, or lack thereof, our right to control our own bodies, and who we may love, the earth we live on, how wealth can be accumulated, and a myriad of other issues affecting our daily lives is greatly impacted by the Supreme Court's decisions. What is the proper role of the courts in America? Is part of their role to protect us from bad laws made by executives and legislators? To be a backstop of last resort? What role did America's founders intend for the Supreme Court? Is the 21st century court being true to that intent? Well, the history of the Supreme Court is a fascinating one, filled with crucial twists and nuances. And as one who worked for 14 years in a law factory, the New Hampshire State Senate, I'm continuously fascinated by the making and interpretation of laws. The Supreme Court has more power over our lives than most people realize. Today, I'm pleased to have as our guest fellow podcaster Tom Hartman, whose soon-to-be-released book is called The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Thanks for being with us, Tom. Hey, Bert. It's a pleasure to be here. In the book, he says that the court has become a nearly despotic branch of government, but offers this note of optimism. The people themselves have occasionally gone to war with the court and won. The author, Tom Hartman, is a progressive, national and internationally syndicated talk show host of the Tom Hartman program. Talkers Magazine named him America's most important progressive host and has named his show one of the top ten talk radio shows in the country every year for over a decade. A four-time recipient of the Project Censored Award, Hartman also uh, is also a New York Times best-selling author of 25 books translated into multiple languages. I think he's got Trump beat. Uh, you don't lack for a platform for your thoughts, Tom Hartman. And, and uh, what motivated you to write this book? What is your purpose? Who are you trying to reach? I've been wanting to reach uh, to write this book since uh, the early 2000s, around 2000. In fact, I think it actually was 97, 98. Louise and I bought, my wife and I bought a house in Vermont and in the uh, in the attic over the carriage house, found an old water-stained, uh, pretty valueless but readable uh, collection, twenty-volume collection of the collected writings of Thomas Jefferson. The one and only time it's ever been published. It was in 1909, on the anniversary of his leaving the White House a hundred years earlier. Um, 
and I, I spent the better part of a year. We had sold a, a business and had retired. And I, I, I spent about a year just reading, just living inside his brain. Yeah. And um, it was absolutely fascinating, captivated by all the drama around this decision in 1803 in the third year of his presidency, or the second second year of his presidency, where he uh, where the Supreme Court rose up and essentially said, uh, we have the power and the right to strike down laws that have been passed by Congress and signed by the president. And, uh, and, and Jefferson said, no, you don't. No. But he couldn't do anything about it because he won the case. But uh, it was a pretty big deal. Yeah, and, and it really applies to today as well. And uh, history is so important to learn. And as regular listeners to my show have heard me say many times, uh, it seems to me the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. But the opportunities are there. The book opens with a quote from Lincoln's first inaugural speech. What concern did he express that may still apply to the court today, maybe even more so? Uh, I'd have to look at the book. What was the quote? Well, let's see here. I got it right here. Uh, oh, here it is. The candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions is affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they are made, then in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent Supreme Court tribunal. Yeah, this was uh, Lincoln. He was ranting about Dred Scott. The, the first time uh, this, 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 uh, this process of striking down laws is called judicial review. And the first time the judicial review was used um, by, by the Supreme Court was in 1803, as I mentioned in the Marbury case. And, uh, you know, Jefferson just exploded on this thing, as did much of America. There was huge national controversy around it. And as a result of that, John Marshall, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, he, he, his fingers got burned. And he basically didn't use judicial review again, at least in any consequential way, throughout the rest of his term as Chief Justice. And he was the longest uh, seated Chief Justice, I believe, in the history of the country. Um, It wasn't until 1856 that it came back in another really consequential case, and that was when uh, Justice Taney, uh, Roger Taney, uh, Chief Justice, decided that he would once and for all solve the slavery problem. And uh, this was in the case of Dred Scott in 1856 when he ruled that uh, black people, regardless of where they lived in the United States, uh, were property under the law. And uh, Lincoln, when he became president, basically said, I'm going to ignore uh, what the Supreme Court said. We're going to defy this ruling. And ultimately, you know, uh, the South declared the war, but the North also went to war in part around that decision. It's it's so good to know that stuff, and, and it's not very well known. And, and in this book, uh, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America, you write, We the people can elect members of Congress and presidents all day long, but as long as the court holds power to strike down laws or even replace laws with new doctrines as they did in Dred Scott, Plessy, Roe, Heller, Citizens United, and others— the Supreme Court and its inferior federal courts has final say over the present and future of America. That is just a little bit uh, chilling. And you also say the, uh, the framers empowered the Supreme Court for two main reasons. What, what are those? Well, the, the, the court had to have 
the, the court was created essentially the Supreme Court um, because there had to be a buck stops here place. Right, right. Uh, you know, the, the, if if you and I got into a dispute and one of us won in court and then the other one thought, well, no, that's not right, and they you, know, you take it to an appeals court and then you know eventually you work your way up. You got to go someplace where the buck stops. That's the Supreme Court. It's the it's the court of last appeal. Um, it also served uh, the function of being the court that would be the primary court, the first court that you would go to in uh, intergovernmental disputes, you know, between uh, branches or between states, and in disputes between the United States and other nations or in maritime disputes. Um, but those were the those were the principal things uh, that the court was designed to do. Um, if you go back and read the Federalist Papers, read uh, Alexander Hamilton's writings about what the court, you know, this court that they were proposing in the Constitution, um, how it would function. Hamilton goes through some of this lengthy riff about how it's going to be the least likely to offend. Um, the the, judici- uh, the uh, executive branch has the power of the sword. The, the legislative branch has the power of the purse. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, has basically no power at all, um, yeah. et cetera. And uh, he does mention at one point the possibility of judicial review. He kind of leaves that door open. But he also, in another place in, in, the, in the Federalist Papers, explicitly says we're not going to allow judicial review. <laughs> so he kind of had it both ways. Um, and the founders of this country were never, hardly ever of one mind. I mean, people think somehow the intent of the framers and the founders is clear. Uh, no, there's been a lot of battles. Uh, one of, And you cited the uh, 1803 case of Marbury versus Madison. Uh, and Thomas Jefferson uh, had some thoughts. Uh, and this was just shortly after the War of Independence. Th- Thomas Jefferson had some thoughts. What did he think that the Supreme Court had become as a result of that case? Well, when, when they made the Marbury decision, um, he wrote letters to a series of friends, uh, one to Abigail Adams, one to Spencer Roan. Um, I forget who the third one that I quote in the book is from, but um, in one he said, if this decision is allowed to stand, then our Constitution has become a suicide pact. In another, he said uh, that under this doctrine, the Supreme Court has become the mo- a despotic branch. And in another, he said, under this decision, the Supreme Court, the Constitution is now a thing of wax to be molded in the hands of the judiciary. And, and you know, keep in mind, judicial review in the first 80 years of the existence of America, you know, from 1789, when the Constitution is ratified, up until the Civil War, uh, you know, 1860, only happened twice. Um, they started using judicial review more aggressively in the 1870s and 1880s as America was industrializing and as the battle over, over uh, you know, the collapse of, of Reconstruction was happening. Um, and, and that's when the court started to get political uh, and corporate. And uh, by, by now, I mean, nowadays, the court basically every decision, I mean, not literally every decision, but the vast majority of the decisions the court takes now are, are decisions where they're basing their decisions on the Constitution. And the interesting thing, Bert, and the, and the question that sometimes people will ask is, okay, well, if the court is not supposed to be the final, you know, it's not supposed to interpret what laws are constitutional and what are not. And if Congress passes some law saying that if you criticize the president, you can put, be put in jail forever, which would be clearly, you know, a violation of the First Amendment, 
but Congress passes it and the president signs it. Who's to stop them if not the court? Right. And uh, that was basically the argument that, that uh, George Mason made in a letter to, to Thomas Jefferson, saying, well, you know, if not the court, then who? And Jefferson replied, saying, the people themselves. Very simple, three words, the people themselves. And Mason was like, well, what are you talking, what, what do you mean by that? And, and Jefferson said, we organized the Congress, the House of Representatives, mm -hmm. which has the... Uh, primary power of the person, the primary power to make war. Everything in those areas has to start in the House. We organize that so that every single member gets reelected every two years. So if Congress ever goes off the edge, and if they start passing laws that are clearly unconstitutional, it is the duty of the people to stop them, not the courts. If we put that power with the courts, you have created basically a monarchy. And the arguments for the courts to have that power of judicial review are monarchist arguments <laughs> that you can't trust the people. You can't trust democracy. Well, sometimes, as, as you said, I mean, if there were a case, for example, of, of you know, the Congress passing a law that, that if you criticize the president, you could be put in jail. What if the people support that? What if the common people support that? You know, I can see how uh, the part of the reason for the court the Supreme Court is a is a backstop against any excesses of the other two branches, but what about uh, maybe the people, the common people, may hold strongly hold positions contrary to the bounds of the Constitution? Isn't that yes. something as well? Well, it's not only possible; it's happened over and over and over throughout the right. history of our country. I mean, you know, the Constitution um, arguably created a certain set of human rights that were not applied to African Americans. Uh, you know, uh, until very recently, actually, in, in whole. Um, it, it created rights that were not applied to women until 1920. It created, you know, so, so the majority of the people have held a lot of anti-small-D democratic positions and a lot of right. anti-constitutional positions over right. the years. Um, it's just that the court hasn't seen fit to intervene. But over time, we've corrected them. What, the the uh -huh. point that Jefferson made in his, in his letter to Mason was that basically either you believe in this democracy thing or you don't, and if you do, you've got to you've got to under, you've got to accept the fact that it's not always going to work out the way you want it to. It's not always going to work perfectly. It's going to have hiccups. It's going to it's going to have setbacks. Um, but the the broad arc of history will, in all probability, be moving forward. He wrote a letter. Uh, I forget. Uh, no, it was to James Madison about the about this with regard to John Adams' presidency. Uh, John Adams had, uh, in 1798, passed the Alien Sedition Act, which was clearly yeah. unconstitutional. In fact, the day, the day before Adams signed the law, he ordered Benjamin Franklin Bach, Ben Franklin's grandson, uh, who published a newspaper in Massachusetts called the Aurora, to be imprisoned, and he stayed in prison for a year. He lost his newspaper, lost everything, um, because Ben Franklin Bach had written an editorial calling John Adams old, toothless, querulous and balding those were the words that that offended adams the, the alien sedition act made it a crime to criticize the president it actually happened it happened in 1798 and and john adams vigorously enforced it he shut down 16 newspapers he put 20 publishers in prison uh you know uh matthew lyon went to the floor of the house of representatives the republic the, the representative from uh, vermont and uh, uh, got in an argument with Roger Griswold, the House, the House yeah. member from uh, Connecticut, uh, called him an elitist, and, and but basically it was around this issue, the Alien Sedition Acts, 
And uh, uh, Griswold picked up a poker from the fireplace. This was when the house, you know, was heated with wood. These guys got in a fight with pokers, and John Adams had uh, Matthew Lyon arrested and sent him to Virgin's Vermont, where he was stuck in an unheated jail cell for a year. And Matthew Lyon ran for re-election in the, eight, in the election of 1800 from jail. And, uh, you know, when he was, uh, and won, by the way. Oh, good. And Jefferson won that election in 1800, and the first thing that happened was, was the, the Alien Sedition Act uh, expired the day, the last day of Adams' presidency, and, and Jefferson refused to renew it, and he issued a pardon uh, to Matthew Lyon. So we've been there before. And Jefferson, when he became president, and when this happened with Marbury, was you know fully aware of the fact that things could go off the rails, and in fact had done so just two years prior. But he still believed that at the end of the day, we are we are essentially good, and yes. that democracy is baked into our DNA that we're a cooperative species rather than a rather than a brutal and competitive species. We have a brutal and competitive side, but our cooperative side, our, our egalitarian side, is the most important. Boy, I like to believe that. Talk about the Sedition Act. In, uh, at the time of the uh, American participation in the First World War, then called the Great War, uh, President Wilson activated the Sedition Act and threw lots and lots of people in jail for daring to criticize American involvement in the First World yep. War. Now, what happened with that constitution? That, that couldn't have been constitutional. I don't know that that was adjudicated by the Supreme Court. Yeah, I'm not I, sure I, it was. I, yeah, I, 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 I think that if it was, I would, I would have come across Probably, that in my yeah. research for this book. Um, so, you know, another example of where uh, democracy restabilizes itself. You know, we're, we're like a, a little gyro, a gyroscope. You know, we, we may fall over, but we bounce back up again. Well, let us hope so. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is the podcaster Tom Hartman, whose soon-to-be-released book is called The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. It's a lot of history, and, you know, I hope democracy bounces back from this assault uh, from uh, the orange one currently in the White House, uh, who I yes. I don't know how long he's going to be there. But uh, you're right that the court is in many ways forcing 21st century America to live under an 18th century form of government. Please say more. Does the shoe no longer fit? And yikes, if that's the case. No, I, I think the shoe fits fits quite well. Um, the, the main problem, and this was the point um, that I make, and probably one of the bigger points that I make in the book, is that the at the time of the writing of the Constitution, the big new thing was the idea of property rights. Um, the idea that, um, I mean, this was relatively recent, uh, even in England, where uh, middle-class people, working-class people, had the right to own uh, their own clothing, and in some cases their own home, for a few hundred years at that point. Um, it was not widespread, and, and paupers didn't have property rights. And, and you know, the, the whole feudal, uh, a thousand years of feudalism in, in Europe uh, the king and the uh, local lords literally owned your underwear. I mean, the right of the first night, they, they owned your wife. Yeah. And um, so when John Locke was in, 16, in the 1670s was writing his second treatise on government, where he had the phrase life, liberty, and the, uh, and the, and the right to property, right. Um, uh, which John, Thomas Jefferson plagiarized, 
Um, Jefferson no longer needed to say the right to property because it was 100 years later, and the right to property was well-established both in the England and in the United States. So he changed it to the, you know, the pursuit of happiness. But the point was that the Enlightenment, the big idea of the Enlightenment was property rights and, so, uh, and human rights. And the, the Constitution deals with those two things in a very big way, very substantial way. Much of the Constitution, in fact, I would say most of the Constitution, has to do with, either, has to do with property rights, and then you know, the yes. Bill of Rights has to do with human rights. Um, but at that point in time, the environment was considered unlimited. You know, uh, it, it, yeah. there was no consideration of, you know, a little blue marble earth out here. Um, everything seemed infinite. And now in the 21st century, we're living in a world where the, the, right, the rights of nature, if you want to put it in that frame, or the right of human beings and other life forms on this planet to yeah. have a survivable environment, and, and a future as we are entering into the sixth great extinction um, are, are the issues of our day. I mean, they're, they're absolutely screening critical issues. And uh, the Constitution doesn't address these in any way. Right. And so that's what I was talking about, that we, you know, that, that we need to address this uh, through, through law, through policy, and, and through our courts. Yeah, that really is breaking new ground, if you pardon the... Uh literal sense there uh, that, uh, you know, in, in most of the laws, in fact, as I understand, police are often there for the purpose of protecting property, really. I mean, it's about protecting sure. property. Uh, yeah. So this this new concept of the rights of Earth, uh, you talk about the case of Juliana versus the United States, the angle of the law protecting is protecting the trust assets that's very interesting. It's an interesting angle that may, uh, d you know, bring in the Constitution. Yes. Um, there was a Supreme Court decision back in the 40s or 50s, I'd have to go back and look when it was, that involved the state of Ohio, in which um, the court found that it was possible for nature to have rights. And... Um, under that doctrine, or a variation on that doctrine, uh, this law professor, Christine Wood, uh, maybe it's Christina Wood, uh, here in Oregon, actually, or University of Oregon law professor, um, pulled together a group of plaintiffs, or she proposed, actually she proposed this idea in her book, and then a, a local lawyer pulled together some plaintiffs and young people who are saying, basically, we are suing the government to do something about fossil fuels because it is stealing our future. And um, this case is still in the courts. It's moving through the courts. And uh, a lot of people expected it to get shut down a whole lot earlier than now, but it's, it's, still, it's still surviving. And yeah, we're that... all very hopeful that, it can, that they can, you know, uh, to borrow your phrase, you know, plow some new, new ground. Well, it's really the angle of uh, that, that, you know, it's a, like a fiduciary responsibility. Our children and their children have assets, and, you know, they, it's held in trust. And mm -hmm. so that may be a way to uh, bring in the rights of the earth, uh, because, yep. you know, if, if we're stealing from them, then their property rights have been adversely affected. Fascinating yep. stuff, I think. And, and court followers have long cited the 1971 Powell memo as a major turning point. You talk about that a little bit. Please do. Yeah, yeah. Lewis Powell in 71 uh, 
in response to Rachel Carson and uh, Ralph Nader, specifically, he names them, uh, wrote a memo to his next-door neighbor, Eugene Sindor, who was the, the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And in that memo, he said, uh, we need to take control of the courts. We need to take control of the legislature. We need to take control of the universities. We need to take control of the textbooks and the schools. We need to create think tanks to, to mold public opinion. We need our people to buy the media. Um, you know, he just yeah. a full court press because he thought that Nader and Carson with the environmental movement and the consumer rights movements were taking America down the terrible road to communism. Yeah. And, you know, what came out of that was the Heritage Foundation and, uh-huh. and, the, and the Federalist Society, which has been helping pack the courts. And it's really uh, having a very, very big effect, and it's continuing uh, on now that that's, that seems to be a priority for real powerful interests. And though Robert Bork was not confirmed to the Supreme Court, yay, you say the Bork Doctrine of 1977 had a major effect on the fairness of the American economy. What is the Bork Doctrine, and what are some of the effects of that? Robert Bork came up with this idea that the Sherman Antitrust Act and the uh, Anti-Monopoly Act, the Clayton Act, um, that these laws uh, were being misinterpreted by the courts and that they didn't really, they weren't really written to protect local communities or to protect workers or to protect consumers uh, or to protect uh, even the institution of businesses. Um, and that there's nothing wrong with big in and of itself. Uh, even there's nothing wrong with monopolies, the dominating oh, industries. Geez. That always and in every case, when we when we look at these cases, particularly through the court system, the only thing we should consider is how much consumers pay for products, the price to consumer. And as long as the price to consumers stayed low, there's no monopoly problem. And that was adopted by the Supreme Court in a case called GTE Sylvania uh, in the 70s, as I recall, and then adopted as policy by the Reagan administration in 81 when they stopped enforcing the Sherman Act. And no administration since then has has, uh, appropriately enforced any of these antitrust laws, which is why now we've gone from, you know, in 1980, over 10,000 different entities owning our media to basically 90% of our media controlled by six companies. Yeah, for example, uh, you know, our foods, uh, you know, basically if you walk through a supermarket, about 80% of the products in the entire supermarket are coming from fewer than a dozen companies um, by hundreds of brands. Uh, it's just, you know, we've lost the diversity, we've lost the competition. Air travel, you've got, you know, four companies, five companies at the most that control the majority of air travel. Uh, they, they function as cartel. All of these companies function as cartels or as monopolies. And some of us have been... It's all because of the Bork Doctrine. Some of us have been so naive as to think uh, the court uh, uh, protects against monopolies, that, that that's been right. a big part of you know who we are as Americans since the Gilded Age, and that uh, we need competition. And that Bork Doctrine, uh, the effects on, on working people, on working Americans, uh, you know, if... if the cheapest product is the only uh, value that matters. Boy, that that really has a big effect on the American economy. Uh, yeah, can you spell Walmart? <laughs> <laughs> I know. And what have they done to small towns across America and to competition, uh, and to fair wages? Well, the right often blasts judges as legislating from the bench. They call it an activist court, but. 
I've wondered for a while, doesn't that also happen from the right-wing judges? And, and they claim right-wingers such as Roberts, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Thomas, Alito, and Scalia were originalists. Are they not legislating from the bench? Are they not activist court? What, what does originalist mean? What, what are some of the problems with the concept of originalism? They have been aggressively legislated from the bench um, to the you know to the point of actually writing uh, what should be the what should be legislation, what should be the job of of the legislature. Um, originalism was a scam, and we can thank Robert Bork for that too. It had popped its head up a few times in the 19th century, but nobody really took it seriously. But then Robert Bork brought it back into vogue when he was uh, working in the Nixon White House and uh, during the Reagan administration. Um, he, you know, was a great proponent of this when he was uh, when he was brought forward for his nomination to be on the court. He didn't end, end up on the court, uh, which is a whole other story. But um, his idea was adopted, and now you've got five guys on the court who say they're originalists. Originalism boils down to this: it's it's, it's sort of like uh, Jerry Falwell telling you, uh, as he told it, the entire country on 9/11, on the, the day after 9/11, him and Pat Roberts sitting on television. Uh, saying that God struck America on 9-11 because, or God allowed it to happen, because we tolerated homosexuality and feminism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when Jerry Falwell tells you he knows the mind of God, uh, you need to run in the other direction. Similarly, when a Supreme Court justice tells you they know the mind of Alexander Hamilton or James Madison or Thomas Jefferson or any of the other founders, uh, you need to run in the other direction. These guys, as you pointed out earlier, Bert, were all over the map, and many of them changed many times in their lives. Jefferson, probably the most notorious. Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, there was no consensus among the founders about pretty much anything. <laughs> and 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 even when there was a consensus, it it you know just wait twenty years and it was different. So it's a scam. It's just it's just <laughs> a, a rationale for them writing, uh, you know, uh, writing decisions that say whatever they damn well want them to say. And and then saying, oh, and by the way, the reason we said that this is because the the founders said it, and probably the most egregious example this is the Heller decision, which uh, you know where Scalia discovered that when they wrote the Second Amendment, they really meant it to mean personal protection, um, when in fact you go back and you read uh. you know, the, the Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention or any of this stuff, and there's no evidence of that at all. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Our guest today, Tom Hartman, and we're talking about his new book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Talk about the Second Amendment. Some people think ah, America has a little problem with guns. You know, and it's a very volatile issue. You refer to Justice John Paul Stevens citing a parable on blind men and an elephant. What did that mean? Yeah. What about that? Well, you know the 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 old uh, the old saw about the blind man and the elephant or the blind man, the five blind men. Right. You know, one they're, they're all trying to figure out what is this thing, and one says, "Oh, it's a rope," and he's holding the tail, and another one says, "No, it's a hose," and he's holding the trunk, and another one says, "No, it's a tree," and he's holding the the leg. And you know, it's it's basically that that what you what you what you believe is a function of the information that you have. And or the information that you choose to have. Uh -huh. So there you go. Yep. And uh, what about the power of corporations as compared to the power of actual natural people? 
Where does that stand today? And, and, and what are the prospects for changing that and taking away uh, corporate personhood? I, I wrote a, a completely separate book about this uh, some years ago called Unequal Protection, the Rise of Corporate Dominance and the Theft of, of Human Rights. And, uh, you know, basically followed the story from the founding of the Republic forward. Um, artificial corporate personhood, the idea that corporations had, you know, at least the right to be in court, um, really jumped forward in 1815 in a, in a case, uh, Dartmouth uh, versus the state of New Hampshire, as I recall. Uh, and... Uh, it, it was pretty non-controversial and, and remains non-controversial. You want a corporation to have certain personhood rights sure. uh, so that they can pay taxes, so that they can be sued or sue, so they can engage in contracts, um, open checking accounts. I mean, you know, basically there, there are certain things that corporations need to do. But the idea that a corporation should have access to the Bill of Rights, to First Amendment free speech rights, to Fourth Amendment privacy rights, to Fifth Amendment uh, rights of, against self-incrimination, to Fourteenth Amendment uh, rights of equal protection under the law. Uh, that was considered a bizarre notion. And uh, in 1886, the, the, the Southern Pacific Railroad uh, was sued by Santa Clara County because they were refusing to pay their taxes, their property taxes, to Santa Clara county california because uh santa clara county was charging them a penny a mile more for property taxes than santa Ana county was and the court and and so the railroad sued and said and this was one of uh six or seven tax cases that were brought to the court by uh stephen field who was the who was the head of the ninth circuit at the time but he was also on the supreme court back in those days each circuit each of the justices, they, they would meet together in D.C. for three months out of the year, and then the rest of the year, they, they were what was called riding the circuit. They would, right. they would, you know, be out, you know, they would run their circuit courts. So Field was very much in the pocket of the railroad barons. He, uh, we, when I was writing on equal protection, uh, we discovered a collection of his writings in the Morrison Rennick Waite uh, section of the Library of Congress. Morrison Rennick Waite was the chief justice of the Supreme Court in the 1880s, and. Uh, Field was basically taking bribes from Jay Gould, who was one of the big three railroad barons of that era. And, and in fact, Gould had told him that if he could uh, rule his way, that uh, Gould would help him run for president in the 1890s. And so Field kept kicking these cases to the Supreme Court, where he would then sit on the court and rule on these cases. And the argument that the Santa, uh, Southern Pacific Railroad made was uh, the 14th Amendment says that every, all persons are entitled to equal protection under the law, and it doesn't say all natural persons, uh, which are human beings, right. as opposed to artificial persons, which are corporations, right. governments, and churches. And uh, so they made this argument before the Supreme Court, and uh, the court dismissed it. They basically said that's a nonsensical argument. That's a stupid argument, in fact. Um, and if you actually read the decision in Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, you get it that the railroad lost the case. The county won. They, the railroad had to pay their damn taxes. But in the head note on that case, and a head note for people who are not lawyers or don't know about this stuff, uh, when the Supreme Court uh, decides a case, the clerk of the court, uh, back, at least this was the practice back then, uh, the clerk of the court would write a summary of the case. Uh -huh. 
and that's called a head note. It has no legal standing whatsoever. It's not part of the actual decision. Um, it's merely an explanatory thing for lawyers and law students and, and judges and whatnot to be able to easily find stuff. Sure. I mean, this is back before the days of computers and fast sorting. <laughs> and and in that head note, in the initial arguments before the court, um, uh, Mr. Sanderson, Robert Sanderson, who was the lawyer, Robert J. Sanderson, who was the lawyer for the for the railroad, stood up and he said, uh, you know, we're arguing here that that uh, our, our client, a corporation, is also a person and should have the rights of persons under the law. Mm-hmm. And Morrison Remick Waite, the Chief Justice, uh, said, uh, nobody disputes that. Everybody agrees that corporations have personhood rights. Now, what he was talking about was the right to sue and be sued, the right to pay your taxes. I mean, in fact, that was the essence of the argument. The county was claiming that this artificial person, the railroad, should pay their taxes. But um, what, what uh, John Chandler Bancroft Davis did, who was the son of the former governor of Massachusetts, the, the heir to a very, very wealthy uh, New England family, and the former president of the B&O Railroad, what he did in this head note is he made it seem like the chief justice was saying, uh, we all agree that corporations are persons who should have rights under the 14th Amendment. And... So even though the court did not rule that, uh, over the next decade or so, uh, two of the guys who, uh, one in the House and one in the Senate, I'm sorry, I don't remember their names, it's been 18 years since I wrote the book, um, but they traveled all over the country doing a little road show that was funded by the railroads, saying that when they wrote the 14th Amendment, they purposely omitted the word natural before the word person, because they intended for the 14th Amendment to encompass corporations as well. Hmm. It's completely ahistoric. There's no evidence that that was the case. Uh, we have the notes from the committee meetings when the 14th Amendment was written. There's no reference to corporations anywhere. Uh, but these two guys did this sales pitch, and the court started adopting this. And the Supreme oh, Court wow. has now, uh, over almost 40 times, cited that head note, including oh, in goodness. Citizens United, where they said, you know, <laughs> corporations have the right to persons. So, you know, the, the Supreme Court has given, uh, in, in the uh, in first National Bank versus Pilate in 1978, they uh-huh. gave corporations the right of free speech, First Amendment. Yeah. Uh, they've, they, in a, in a case where Dow Chemical sued the EPA because the EPA flew a plane over a Dow Chemical factory and took infrared pictures showing that they were illegally emitting benzene gas into the air, they sued and they won before the Supreme Court. The court said, no, they have a Fourth Amendment right of privacy. Um, there have been numerous cases, including uh, tobacco litigation cases, where the court has said that the corporations don't have to testify as to what they know about whether their products kill people because they have Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. Um, I mean, this is completely out of control, and uh, we need a and and all and it was never done by a legislature. Literally, huh. no Congress ever in the history of the United States has said yes, corporations are persons. And no president has ever said, yes, corporations are persons. In fact, Grover, Grover Cleveland, in his uh, 1887 uh, State of the Union address, said, we have seen the rise of corporate power to the point where the average man now stands with the iron heel, the corporate iron heel upon his neck. It was pretty amazing stuff. That was in response, in, in part, to, to that 1886 non-decision. And if you look at the history of the railroads, boy, their power 
really changed the identity of the United States a lot. But we can't get too far into that. But, you know, these laws, it's all complicated and every word really matters. You talked about an interesting interpretation of the head note and the effects that that has. And it affects everybody's lives. And, you know, in many ways, we're still... Uh, our necks are still under the uh, the heel of, of big, powerful interests. And uh, sometimes we can... More so now. Yeah, it's true. Uh, wh- now, what I'm about... Oh, no, no, not at all. What about labor rights? Uh, have they been consistently, the Supreme Court, consistently on one side? And, and that affects a lot of people's, you know, ability to live, for example. Yes. Yeah, it hasn't been entirely consistent. Right. Uh, the court, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, over the oh, course yeah. of his... Uh, his presidency was able to replace, uh, I believe, every single member of the court. Um, and maybe there was one or two that he didn't get to, but I, but I, I'm pretty sure he replaced everybody. And um, so you had a court through the 1940s and 1950s that was largely respectful of labor's rights, yes. and then the right wingers started getting back on the court again. Um, and uh, basically since the mid-1950s, the court has been taking apart the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, yeah. that that gave the right to unionize uh, and, and a whole bunch of other rights to working people, and there, there, there's just been a long string of decisions. Um, I wrote a whole chapter about that for this book on the Supreme Court. Yeah, uh, we're trying to keep the book small, so that chapter didn't fit in the book. So it ah. it, 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 w- it lives on my website, uh, and the book says, you know, if you want to read this chapter, go here. And, and but there's a summary of it basically. But I just go literally case by case by case from 1900 right up until today, and show how the court uh, has been deconstructing labor rights again without any input from the people over the opposition of the vast majority of working people and without any input from the legislature. Yeah, and that that's pretty dangerous. I kind of like democracy, I have to say. And one hears rumblings today uh, about uh, that once Trump is out of there, maybe there should be additional members of the court. I would hate to see him have any more nominations. Is the number nine fixed in the Constitution? What about expanding the court? What are your thoughts on that, Tom Hartman? No, initially uh, there were, I believe, five members of the court. Then it went up to seven. Um, then it went as high as ten. And when Abe Lincoln uh, was assassinated, there were ten members of the U.S. Supreme Court. And Congress got together and passed a law uh, because they were so freaked out. Andrew Johnson was a slave owner and a uh, was a friend of the South. Yeah, And um, uh, the... And and you know when when this was Lincoln's big mistake was putting a, a Southerner on the court or in as vice president. Oh, yes. And so oh, yeah. when Johnson inherited the White House around that same time, a, a vacancy became available in the Supreme Court, and and Congress just freaked out. And so they passed a law, Article Three, Section Two, says that Congress shall regulate the Supreme Court. And so uh, hmm. part of that regulation is determining how many members the court has. So they passed a law saying that the court would go from 10 down to 6, which meant that they could have up to three more people die, uh, you know, before Andrew Johnson would be able to appoint anybody. And then after the, uh, after the election of, uh, what would that be, 1868, I think? Yeah, I think so. When Ulysses S. Grant became president, uh, in the next year, they passed a new law raising the number of members of the court back up to nine, uh, which is where it is today. 
And uh, yeah, there has to be that five to four majority. And of course, one of the most famous rulings was Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, which of course ended uh, legal discrimination in public education. But that was done by the court and not by the legislatures, not by the people. What are your thoughts on that? How did that affect? Well, yeah, I, I think the had the court not ruled the way they did in Brown, um, that probably within a decade you would have seen the legislature do it. And certainly we did. I mean, um, 65 and 66, you got right. the Civil Rights Act and the Voting, right. Voting Rights Act. Right. Um, so uh, this is one of the arguments against judicial review. Um, but on the other hand, you know, yeah, they, they said uh, the, the, the other point, I think, and a, a really important point, is that our legislature had never mandated segregated schools to begin with. Huh. You know, there, there was no law that said the schools had to be legis- uh, segregated until 1896. And that was not a law that was made by Congress. It was a law that was made by the Supreme Court in the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. Uh, the separate but equal decision. Right. So that brought us, you know, de jure legal segregation that lasted until 1954. So basically, all the court was doing in, in Brown versus Board was striking down their own stupid previous decision. And they do that from time advantage. to time. What about reproductive rights? You offer some critiques of the Roe decision. Perhaps the courts making the decision was not the best thing, as it turns out, for protection of these rights. That's interesting. Well, and, and, and it's, it's sort of like with Brown, although I, I, I think with Brown, well, I think in both cases there was some considerable urgency. And so you can understand where if the court had the power to, to act, uh, they would be derelict in, in not acting. And certainly they've had that power since 1803, and so they did. But um, in, in, uh, in 1961, the birth control pill became available. And, you know, legally available, the FDA authorized it. By 63, 64, 65, you had as many as a third of the women in America using contraception regularly. Um, In 1965, in uh, Griswold versus Connecticut, the Supreme Court struck down a Connecticut law which said that it was illegal for even a married couple to own birth control and, and have it in their own bedroom. Really? Um, which legalized birth control across the United States in 65. And that then, you know, along with the growing popularity of the birth control pill and the realization now it had been in the marketplace for three or four years, five years, that uh, women weren't dying from it or getting cancer from it, which was the big concern because um, these are hormone-based pills, um, that uh, that kicked off the women's rights movement of the late 60s and the early 1970s. So by by seventy three, you had women who were fighting um, segregation in the workplace, who were fighting. Um, you know, I, I remember nineteen seventy three, uh, the, the year of Roe v. Wade. I I was running a business in Michigan. My wife was uh, helping me run the business, and in order to get her a credit card, I had right. to go into the bank and sign for her because a woman was not allowed to get a credit card now in the United States in nineteen seventy three. I remember. And, but, but that was all changing quite rapidly. And uh, I think that you could build a, a pretty strong case that had Ro- the Roe v. Wade decision not been decided the way it was when it was, that within a decade uh, you would have seen abortion legalized anyway. And because it was done by the Supreme Court, and then in the subsequent decision, Casey versus uh, 
mm. Planned Parenthood, mm-hmm. uh, they came up with this idea of three trimesters, which is really the province of legislature. You know, uh, Congress should be deciding, you know, how, how long you have to be pregnant, and, you know, before a pregnant, before mm-hmm. um, uh, you mm-hmm. can or can't get an abortion and things like that. So, you know, what, what happened was because the, uh, because the Supreme Court did this decision uh, without basically any input from the public, um, the, the people who were opposed to abortion saw this as their, their, their right to, ha- you know, to lobby and to legislate being taken away. And that produced an enormous backlash, yes. anti-abortion backlash that that echoes to this day. Oh, yeah. And frankly, had we waited another five years or so and let it go through the legislative process, state by state, ultimately federally, um, we would have gotten to the point where abortion was legal across the United States, and it wasn't a subject of great dispute because it would just be widely accepted because it right. had passed through you know democracy through legislative processes. And that may this again been. kind of in, in, invokes the wisdom of Jefferson in saying it should be the people themselves, not the court. Although, again, you can say this was a crisis for women, and uh, just like you know Brown solved a crisis for for African Americans. Although there was enormous backlash to Brown. I mean, yes, you know, indeed. Look at the, you know, yeah. the Prince George's County, Maryland, shut down their schools for a year. Large chunks of Virginia shut down their schools for for an entire year. Um, uh, you know, the blowback was substantial to Brown. There's a lot to be said for doing things democratically through the legislative yeah. process. That the people. Yeah, what a novel idea. <laughs> Oh, I know. And uh, you, your final chapter is to save the planet, democratize and modernize the Supreme Court. To understate it, yeah. that's a tall order. You say that it's a crisis of legitimacy. Most Americans, I don't think they're questioning the legitimacy of the court. What do you, what do you mean by a crisis of legitimacy? And how can uh, people fight back against the court's most harmful rulings? Well, I, you, you, on the right... They're still railing against Brown v. Brown v. Board. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this was the job that John Roberts had inside the uh, Reagan administration: was figuring out legislative ways to overturn the Brown decision, the Brown versus Board decision, and the Roe v. Wade decision. Um, so, right wingers are still fulminating about about uh, Brown and about uh, Roe. Roe. Oh, yeah. On the left you got people very, very upset about Citizens United. Yes. And, you know, this major usurpation, and going all the way back to the one we were talking about earlier, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, um, you know, this usurpation of, of human rights, of, 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 of uh, humanity, essentially, of personhood. So uh, I think that there is a legitimacy crisis, a crisis of legitimacy with regard to the court. And, um, but we've kind of just become inured to it or, or you know, used to it. We've, we, you know, the, the idea that, um, you know, when, when Obamacare was passed by Congress, for example, the first question was, what will the court do? Right. Well, that's a stupid question. That's like, you know, Parliament passing a law and saying, well, what will the kings or the queens say? You know, the queen doesn't say anymore. <laughs> but here in the United States, we've got a court that does say. I mean, the, the, the high court of the United Kingdom um, almost never uses judicial review. Um, so we have become a far less democratic nation than the vast majority of democracies around the world. Um, Germany has a separate court that does that engages in judicial review, and they meet very rarely, and they they handle very very few cases because everybody realizes, you know, how insanely controversial that is. Um, 
and and several European countries, the the High Court has no power of judicial review. So uh, I'm suggesting that if we're not going to overturn judicial review, and I provide two uh, ways that we could do that, um, but you know maybe we're just not ready for that much democracy. If we're not going to do yeah. that, then at the very least we can uh, stop this process of running presidential and senatorial elections with massive amounts of outside money specifically to be able to pack the court. And we could do that by having term limits for Supreme Court justices, for example, um, among other things. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I, I mean, I don't favor term limits for Congress because, you know, why can't you can't tell, I don't think it's right to tell people they can't vote for who they want to vote for, but justices well, are now there for life. For Congress, yeah. And, and when you have term limits for Congress, what you're doing is you're strengthening the lobbyists. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you, when you, you know, there, there, there has to be a permanent institutional memory. So when a new member comes into Congress, they, they hook up with an older member to learn how things are done and how you pass bills and where the, where the restroom key is yep. and, uh, you know, where the bodies are buried. Um, when you have term limits, and we've learned this from, from a half a dozen states that have passed term limits for their legislatures, when you have term limits, what happens is that permanent in- infrastructure, the institutional infrastructure, becomes the lobbyists. And that's yes. a really bad thing. But what about the courts? Um, but with regard to the court, um, uh, what a number of different kinds of term limit schemes have been suggested. Um, probably the simplest one is that um, you organize rolling onto the court and off the court so that every presidential term has the opportunity to nominate either one or two members of the court. And because judges, federal judges, including Supreme Court judges, are given lifetime appointments, um, you don't remove them from the federal judiciary. You simply say, okay, you know, you've, you've, now you've gone from being on the D.C. Circuit to being on the Supreme Court. You've been on the Supreme Court for 12 years or 16 years or whatever, and now you're going to roll back to the D.C. Circuit. So you're still a federal judge. You still have an appointment for life. And it, it wouldn't require a constitutional amendment to do. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. It would, simply, it would just require simple legislation. Sounds like a decent idea. Uh, I, I'm, you're, I'm reminded when uh, John Quincy Adams went from being president to a member of Congress. Uh, right. You, you, you're, uh, just so he could defy the law, you know. Remember uh, that? I didn't it was, remember that. Go ahead. Yeah, it was against the law. Uh, the House of Representatives, it was against the law to mention slavery on the floor of the House of Representatives. Ah. And, John, and that's why John Quincy Adams ran for the House. He was an abolitionist. And he, he made it a point to mention slavery every single day on the floor nah. that the House was in session. A good man. We've had some good people in government, yeah, good, yeah. Some, some good people on the Supreme Court. I mean, really, lots of good people yeah. on the Supreme Court, including the notorious RBG, of course. Uh, there you go. Your remedy includes this suggestion. Americans must now consider ways to diminish the power of the Supreme Court, work around it, or pack it as FDR proposed. Are American citizens starting to get how powerful and autocratic and despotic the court is? Do you think people are starting to get it? You know, I think it comes in bits and pieces, but, uh, you know, ask anybody, just say Citizens United, and and you'll get an immediate response. Um, uh, What people don't realize is that uh, there was a time in America, in fact, throughout the founding generation, uh, you know, right up through the generation that fought the Civil War, who would have thought that a decision like Citizens United was impossible, or at least obscene. And, you know, we've just, like I said, we've kind of grown used to it. But the people can make a difference, can they not? I mean, there's some degree of hope. We've we've done it in the past. How can we continue to do it? 
Yeah, you know, this country's been to hell and back. We fought a civil war. We went through World War I, World War II. Uh, you know, we went through uh, the horrors of, of the failure of Reconstruction. We, we, you know, we we have we've had really hard times and bad times. We've had really good times and successful times. And I believe we'll get through this too. Um, but you know, we need to know our history. If we're going to chart a course yeah, in the future, that. we need to know where we came from. Boy, what a concept! How we got here understanding who we are, what our identity is. The book is called The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Our guest has been author and podcaster Tom Hartman. Thank you so much for being with us. This is really fascinating stuff. My pleasure, Bruce. It's been a pleasure being on with you. Well, thank you. Likewise. Lebanon